Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in sports cars conversation chat thing powered by you, our dear listeners, uh, spun by myself and my pal, my co-pilot, my ami, mon ami, Graham Goodwin, he, the editor of dailysportscar.com and face voice and arse that you get to enjoy on <laughs> FI World Endurance Championship broadcasts. And I don't know if it has endurance in it somehow or sports cars in it. You uh, you know my man, the man from DSC, Graham Good. Evening all. Um, yeah, lovely. Well, it's not lovely. I just looked out the window. It's not that lovely. Great big dark cloud here in the uh, southeast of England this evening. So I think we're about to get uh, another... More than a sprinkling of rain. Uh, just building up, by the way, MP, to another road trip on our way to Monza for this weekend's European Le Mans series. And we'll be staying uh, down that way for the WEC and the uh, competitive debut of the Peugeot Hypercar, the 9X8, uh, the following weekend. So lots going on, but boy, oh boy, was there a lot going on this weekend just past. Yeah, absolutely. Good old six hours of the Glen, sponsored by hot dog manufacturer and i believe a vehicle finally given a numerical code mm-hmm. a name that we can speak about a couple other bits and developments so why don't we say a quick thank you as always to our listeners who send in the questions that shape the show also to our pals at the amazing cooper tires the equally amazing, I would I would venture to say awesome, Graham, Justice mm-hmm. Brothers. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. And then uh, we're going to close that thank you roster with torontomotorsports.com, makers of fine automotive, motor racing, memorabilia, and whatnot. So we last week tried something a little bit different with the format of the show. Instead of sticking to categories and answering whatever questions came down the pipeline, we said, you know, Let's try and refine that a little bit. Pick some major topics that we want to explore. Again, all shaped by our listeners and their questions, but maybe just make this a little more of a conversation than just rattling through Q&A items. So I really enjoyed it. We have heard positive feedback on that. So I say let's give it a whirl yet again with the questions yes. put together, organized by our pal Daniel Summersgill. So where should we start this off, brother? Well, we're going to start it off uh, with, uh, it's not very, very often, but an undeniably good news story. And I'm just going to say two words, and then you're going to speak some words. And those two words are Robert Wickens. Yes, Wiki, 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 Wiki. He and Mark Wilkins, Wilkins, Wilkins had their uh, their breakthrough win as a new team, as a new tandem in 2022 with the Brian Herta Autosport Hyundai TCR outfit in IMSA's Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. And oh, there was still the feature race to run on Sunday, Graham. The Salem mm-hmm. Six Hours of the Glen. The big IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship visit third of the four major endurance races each year. And I'm fairly confident, brother, that the result by Robbie uh, and Mark winning on Saturday might continue to overshadow that so uh brian dyward he sends in uh not a question he says but let's enjoy some happy news 
Robert Wickens won his sports car race uh, at Watkins Glen. Let's celebrate the determination of a badly injured driver, Graham, who now has limited use of his legs, doing the work necessary to come back to racing and win. Says Robert's a good man who uh, uh, could have retreated from the racing life, but he stared fate in the eyes and said, no. He says, what an inspiration to others who face challenges to know the battle isn't over until you say it's over. And that's a, a great observation here, Brian, and a perfect yep. fit for Robert's personality. So this is his first win since 2017, I believe, his final year in the DTM. I know for Robert, though, it's, it's not a case of watching the clock, watching the calendar, and saying, how long has it been since I last won? But a case of, I'm just not comfortable in my skin until I win again. So I don't know if there's any real attachment to the last win that he had, Graham. But knowing, as Brian mentioned, all that he went through, all the rehabilitation he has done, to get back to a place where he can race using hand controls, um, this was never about getting back to racing. Meaning, ah, that's the goal. Just getting back on track. If I do that, well... That's a major achievement in and of itself. That is not how Robert Wickens is wired or will ever be wired. When he made this decision, when Hyundai and Brian Hart Autosport made this offer, this was not about, cool, I get to go play doing the thing I like. It's, I want to win now. I want to win every race. And he has gone home pissed, <laughs> frustrated, even though this is all new to him again touring car racing like small touring car again dtm obviously the guy was a badass there but this is just something entirely new entirely different front wheel drive turbo hand controls all these things that are radically different graham than whatever he's done before even all with all those caveats at daytona on debut yeah yeah it was cool that i got back and yeah but you could still see that bit of seething uh fire <laughs> behind his eyes where you go oh yeah this guy's like really not wired for second place or third or whatever that isn't winning so i love that that is probably what i took away most from his victory uh with teammate mark wilkins on saturday it wasn't this joyful explosion of i did it it was where are we going next Okay, let's go in there. Like there was just such a quick transition to, yeah, this is cool. It's great. You're not going to hear a lot of emotions from me though. And I'm not going to be going wild and celebrating uh, like this is the end of the line. Like, no, let's go get the next one. Such a classic hardcore racers mentality, Graham. That's what I love about this guy. It's brilliant, isn't it? You know, actually just as you were talking about that, um, I'm kind of just processing at the moment various bits and pieces that I've got to kind of catch up with after a hectic weekend. I almost stumbled across uh, another not very different story. Um, having seen a car that didn't seem to belong where I was seeing it, it was only actually after I'd left Goodwood that I realized what that program was. So Goodwood Festival of Speed is part of what we're going to be talking about next, the Porsche program. And there was a 
road car, a, a, a McLaren 720S Spider with some quite prominent branding on it, clearly not a race car, sitting in amongst the primary paddock. It's only later I realized what that was, was a semi-autonomous version of the 720S um, fitted uh, for Sam Schmidt to go up the uh, the Goodwood Hill Climb yes. this weekend with a uh, exoskeleton um, technology that allows Sam to effectively take this car where his head is pointing it towards. And again, you know, what an amazing example of just resilience as well as the technology that's allowing people to do things they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do just a very short period ago. It's, it's uplifting stuff, isn't it? 100%. 100%. Speaking of uplifting, yes. we had some uplifting of a car cover at Goodwood uh, to reveal <laughs> a, a red, black, and white porker, yes. also yes. known as the Porsche 963. And yes. that's going to dominate uh, a lot of what we discuss here going forward, Graham. What can I mention this? It means nothing. It's just, it was my first reaction to learning about the model number uh, before uh, th this went out to the world, having grown up with the 962. Yes. Uh, like, really, I've been in and around that car since I was in my early teens. Uh, loved it. One of my all time favorite race cars. Um, nine, six, two, it rolls off the tongue. It looks good in front of me. Those numbers stack together struggling with nine, six, three. I don't know why. And I'm not saying anyone else sees any issue with it. And I don't have a real issue, but knowing how nine, six, two just looks correct to me, nine, six, three, I don't know why uh, I'm not loving it. And it isn't okay. rolling off the tongue the way that I'd hoped. So there's you're that sure little peculiarity. Just, it's not just 962 turned up to 11 then? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, but it does go one louder to 963. Louder. So maybe that's that's better. But all that stuff aside, hey, uh, the car that we saw unveiled in camouflage livery towards the end of December, early January, whatever, it now has colors. It now has a name. It now has a driver lineup graham uh yep. lots to unpack here where shall we start talking about this 963 presentation to the world okay well i mean i uh, with huge thanks to porsche uh, in germany and porsche gb i was a guest at um the launch at goodwood um sneaking by the way into the back of that launch without a ticket, without an invitation, I did spot Tom Christensen and sneaked out again afterwards as well. So Tom, very interested in what was going on. But yeah, um, saw the car. Uh, and not only did we see the car, and the car we saw unveiled was a very well-presented show car, but moments later, uh, we saw Dane Cameron take the first um, completed car up the hill at Goodwood. So it was what they they call their a dynamic debut that car is one of two currently complete 963s there is one in the united states at the moment um so lots of positivity number one it's a it's a good looking car it's a reasonably generic um modern day prototype uh it, i think it's up for debate and i'm sure you're going to demand to bring us that debate in moments about the 
uh, any visual links or otherwise to the 962. <laughs> there, were plenty, there, were, <laughs> there were plenty of 962s and 956s there to compare, by the way, including the very first car, 956001, uh, and one of the Le Mans winning cars taken up the hill by none other than Andre Lotra, who was later revealed as, of course, being one of the drivers in the uh, in the squad. <clears throat> but look, it's a story of undoubted positivity. Um, they teed up for us the fact that there was imminent announcements to be made by the first of the privateers, and that, of course, happened. I think it was the following day, wasn't it? It was Saturday we got both those announcements. The first of them for the MC Weather Tech Sports Car Championship, the second for the FI World Endurance Championship. And it, it, I will be giving you, by the way, people listening to this podcast will hear for the first time some additional details of that Jota effort. Um, it's a story I've not yet put on Daily Sports Car, so I, I have telegrammed Ooh, that. Uh, hashtag yeah. breaking exclusive scoop. It is indeed no. um, about some details of that. Uh, very positive details, by the way, of that program. Um, we also know that because we were told by Thomas Loudenbach and that in an interview, again, will be on Daily Sports Car. And we've got a podcast version of that uh, chat with Thomas um, that there will be two cars made available for 2023 for, uh, for WEC and two cars made available for IMSA. And uh, here's the first part of that breaking exclusive scoop. Only one of them will be with the Jota efforts, and the other one, so far announced, will be JDC Miller. So you can presume from there there are two other programs still to be announced. That's also good news. That means that we move on to, I think I'm right, nine confirmed cars for uh, the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship for next season although there is some doubt as to whether or not we'll see JDC Miller's car at Daytona. Supply chain is biting hard. Um, and I think we move on to 10 for the uh, FI World Endurance Championship with more to come because uh, there's a little bit more news on, for instance, Glickenhaus uh, to add into the mix later in the show. So really good news. Really positive. The quality of communication from, from Porsche, absolutely excellent. Um, great opportunity to look at the car up close, to talk to just about everybody involved uh, in the efforts. And what a nice thing, MP, to just have a, a weekend, a racing weekend, where there was so much positive news that wasn't just about another factory programme, but what we hope is going to be a new era of privateers adding depth and colour to to that that storyline. Don't you think? I do. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot here. Gustavo Bamba, of course, uh, talking about uh, the strategy of, of customer cars, asking um, what that strategy might be. Um, I think that's... I think that's been discussed somewhat, Gustavo, if not on the show here and in, in some of what you might have read. I know that, well, there's one more team slash so, uh, single 963 to be announced on the IMSA side. I uh, do believe we're going to be staring at two factory cars next year plus two privateers, so three teams, four cars. I 
also believe Porsche has an intent to make two more 963s available on the customer side, at least here in IMSA, uh, for 2024. Mm-hmm. So we could see, again, we could see a, a, a nice half dozen uh, 963s running here in IMSA. So strategy-wise, we'll admit uh, a little bit little bit surprised by the timing the the lack of ready vehicles being available for customers i know we have the ever-present conversation graham of supply chain and what might be limited and how many can you and again i I get all that i'm not diminishing any of that Mm -hmm. but knowing that the at least what we believe was the uh the first prototype who knows if they had a you know other models or other cars built but uh, we saw the first car running six months ago, almost, what, seven now? Uh, as I understand, and I think we mentioned on the show too, uh, Multimatic, the constructor of the uh, chassis that the 963 is built upon, delivered something like three chassis to Porsche. I believe it was by the end of November, beginning of December. However the rollout was, whether it was three all at once or uh, one and then another one sent soon after, then a third soon after that. In theory, they were able to generate quite a number of them eight, nine months ago. Um, the concept of being able to handle Jota and handle JDC and whomever else might be added to that list here in the U.S., I would say that is a little bit of a surprise from a uh, execution standpoint, Graham, knowing that. The factory is always going to be the number one priority when ramping up a brand new program. But still, uh, that does stand out as does stand out as a little bit of a surprise. But I would also say that we saw this happen this year with BMW's brand new uh, GT3 car, right, where the mm-hmm. Paul Miller Racing Team ended up missing slash skipping the 24 hours of Daytona because just supply not being an option uh, to get them taken care of, knowing that there are lots of those to build. But does it surprise you that in theory, one year after that, coming up on the January 2023 Rolex 24, that this is still potentially an issue of, of fulfilling a very small order book, right? Not, oh, we're struggling to get all 10 orders handled, uh, customer orders handled, but the one that we know of so far is saying they might not be there. Does that surprise you? Uh, it, it it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. If you get your head around where the supply chain at the moment is particularly struggling, and I think there's one major component at the moment that is a big issue, and it's not a Porsche specific component, and that is the MGU. It's the it's the uh, it's the motor end, if you like, of the hybrid drivetrain being supplied by. Williams, where I believe there is a significant shortage. I I have had a rumour, which I'm not going to repeat, um, because it's a rumour, about just how short they are of those units. And the problem there, of course, is that's not about the Porsche 963. That's about the Cadillac and the BMW and the Acura as well. And you might guess that the supply chain demand would have to service those factory 
demands before anybody gets their hand on a second tier uh, supply for the customer cars. So certainly that is the one area of this package that my understanding is that they're struggling with adequate supplies. And it may be, and I'm going to say it out loud, I know not one way or the other, reliability of that component. So uh, that's one I think to keep an eye on in the days, weeks and months to come. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, we've got big commitments being made here. You wrote a story for, Ray, was it Racer, uh, about the cost of these cars? Yes. $2.9 million. Yes. Okay. Pony up. It ain't cheap, y'all. But as, as you know, even the crows agree. See, the, the, the answer on this, by the way, is here's the weirdness is genuinely in the marketplace we're talking about. That doesn't appear to be an issue. I don't think there's there's very many people in this marketplace that expect to lose money over not just the competitive life of those cars, but the, the their life as an asset after that. These are going to be cars that spend their racing days racing in the very biggest events on the planet for endurance racing. And Porsche factory-built cars that do that tend not to lose money, do they? They do not, which was, I think, how I kind of sort of ended uh, yeah. the article. Uh, that was for uh, that was actually for Road and Track. I apologize. It was Road and Track. That um, was why I was hedging my bets. Yeah, no worries. But yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, if I had the money, I'd buy one and sit on it, but I don't, so I'm not. Uh, hey, we got some other questions here regarding sure. the 963. Uh, Kevin Perez, Frederico, and Ian Keyworth. Let's see. Uh, Kev says, uh, 963 looks like classic cues of Porsche Motorsports Heritage. Um, mm-hmm. not really a fan of the headlights, but I understand it's part of the current model. Heard that more than once. Yep. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, talking about, uh, the RS spider and the headlights and some of the revisions there, uh, are GTP cars locked in the current design? Are they able to upgrade? I mean, we haven't even launched the formula yet, brother. So <laughs> how about we actually hold a race before we start talking about upgrading? Uh, yeah, I, I would. Not think, Graham, that uh, revisions to the cars would be permitted unless there was some sort of drastically uh, safety-related safety safety-related performance. Some, but Correct. granted, all these cars are going to be if they well, they will all be put through. Just talking on the IMSA side, uh, wind tunnel work, uh, aero balancing work, all kinds of stuff. I can't imagine any of them would come out for competition being vastly uh lacking in any area but un- it unless one sh- magically shows that it has vast aerodynamic deficiencies that i guess somehow the factory didn't find in their own wind tunnel uh, i can't imagine there being any allowance for any bodywork changes anytime soon no indeed um i think the other answer here is uh, i have heard a number of people comment on these these lights um this is a brand new area for Porsche. Remember, okay, we've had the LMP1 hybrid, but the whole push behind the LMTH side of things is this electrification. And it is sort of that design language, isn't it? This very different look, the kind of the uh, the full rear width 
light bar, if you like, which is, okay, a little bit 992, 9.11, but also a bit Taycan. Uh, it, it is the design language that is their kind of future styling look. So I guess you want to look at it this way, and I think you're probably going to disagree, but if you see it as being a fusion of some of the kind of heritage of Porsche styling together with some nods towards the future, you would guess that that's the kind of look that Porsche would be looking for, wouldn't you? I guess, but what I need help with, uh, and Ian mentions this, what a nod to the 962 and Porsche heritage. Where? Tell me one place on the car. Anybody, please. Where? Badge. All right. Uh, so then I guess the 2001 uh, Porsche Boxster that I saw uh, yesterday that had a Porsche badge also yeah. is a nod to the 962. The <laughs> Point to one, and I'm, I'm not saying this to you, Gray. I'm just saying in general, I've read... I read a story. Um, I read a story from somebody over the weekend on a fairly major automotive website uh, who I think just swallowed whatever PR nonsense uh, without even asking themselves if it was the least bit legitimate that the 963 borrows heavy uh, visual imagery and shapes and all kinds of stuff from the 962 uh, and also mentioned, uh, what else did they mention here? Um, oh, that, uh, let's see, what was the other thing here? Oh, uh, the body of the 963 is reminiscent of the smooth, rounded look of the previous Porsche Team Penske collaborations like the Porsche 962 of the 1980s. Huh? So, what? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, what? that previous Porsche... Uh, Team Penske 962 program that we all remember and love, right, Graham? Yeah. I mean, when yeah. we when we wax nostalgic, think about all yeah. the the models, right? The 143rds, 118s. You and I have the T-shirts, the stickers. Yeah. Mm. Again, I of all the 962 factory efforts, that Team Penske one in GTP, <clears throat> my absolute favorite. But I, I just <clears throat> asked this. I, I asked this, and in, in all honesty, not trying to be a dick, but tell me where. One iota of the 962's bodywork, and I know that there are many iterations of that bodywork, but again, talking maybe the classic original first couple of years of the 962, tell me where there's a single iota of 962 in the 963. I can't find any of it. I can find suggestions that there are, I, but I know the lines of the Porsche 962 inside and out. There's nothing there, not a single thing, not one. And yet I don't fully grasp where this perpetration that there is, is a thing. But anyways, uh, between the model number and this notion, I find myself a little cranky on something that I probably shouldn't be. So, uh, why don't we move on? Michael O'Keefe. Yes. I'm throwing, yeah. I'm hurling this at you <laughs> like a diseased monkey at a zoo uh i am hurling you this question from michael o'keefe says do you have any insight Raymond? who the pairings are going to be for the uh the penske porsches not the uh 962 program graham but uh the 963 program both in imsa and in WEC. also mentions it seems like they named nine drivers but there should only be four between two cars as one a reserve driver i wonder if they're talking about the good old mako shark himself but uh what do yeah. you know about lineups my man 
uh, not a lot. So I, I spoke to uh, almost all of the drivers we had uh, on parade at uh, Goodwood, and they were very clear. We have not been told. There has not been that. Uh, that has not been communicated. I think you could probably take a look at those drivers and see who's got experience where and make that that link uh, pretty clearly. Uh, it is eight, not nine. You're quite right, Fred Makivicki. It was slightly, I, I did point this out to Porsche, it was not brilliantly written. Um, it didn't make clear whether or not Fred was being named as and thanked as his role as a test and development driver or announced as a factory driver. It is the former. He is not at the moment been named as one of the factory race drivers for those cars. So we've got eight. Um, how many might we be reasonably expecting? I would reasonably expect there to be um, eight full season drivers, two each, per, two per car in IMSA, three per car because it's longer races in the, uh, the WEC. But then you'll need additional drivers for... Uh, the three longer races, or even four longer races, depending on the way they decide to split these for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. So I think we've got, and I think they've, they've sort of implied this, there's another couple to come. Whether or not they're from within the family or whether or not they are big-name drivers coming from elsewhere in perhaps the Penske family or, or, or externally has not been made clear. So eight we have. And they are the aforementioned uh, Dane Cameron and Felipe Nazar, and then a galaxy of existing Porsche talent, uh, including the previous triple Le Mans winner, Andre Lotra, coming back, of course. And then beyond that, it's uh, for the most part guys from Porsche's GT program. And, you know, and most of those names, I think it's fair to say, MP, you probably could have picked out from the. Uh, the the available talent with the likes of Kevin Estre, uh, Michael Christensen, Matty Campbell, Matthew Jaminet, um, names that is it is good to see involved in that program. And uh, actually, one guy that I I did expect to see there on Friday, but wasn't uh, the mercurial Laurence Fanter. Um, and I have to tell you, personally delighted to see that he's getting a shot in a prototype. Can't wait to see yeah. uh, just how his way of approaching a race translates into a very different discipline for him. So we know where we are with that. As for the privateer cars, well, here's the point at which I, I probably add a little bit of detail to what we know about Jota. The first thing to say, as I uh, to repeat, is it is one car confirmed. Uh, it will be Hertz Team Jota. That is going to be the name of the team. Um, and it is a three-year deal from Hertz with Jota with an opportunity to extend that until the end of the current homologation. So potentially a five-year program for wow. that team. That is magnificent news for them. There will be no LMP2 program alongside. It is all in for ACO Real Racing for the time being at least with their Porsche 963 efforts. And they've made it clear as well to me, whilst not mean, naming any names at all, they are looking to fill all three seats with absolutely top quality professional drivers. Um, there is no doubt in my mind 
this is a very serious effort indeed. So the two principal, the, 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 um, the title sponsor, Hertz, and the other uh, sponsor on this car, Singer Automotive, who, of course, make those kind of recreations of classic Porsches, um, they're going to be uh, heavily represented on the vehicle as well. So a, a really cracking program, and great to see, by the way, that one of the established super teams in LMP2 have managed to get this together. It does lend itself as well, MP, to another wider question. And this came in this conversation I had with David Clark from Jota, uh, where he name-checked the two senior um, board members at Hertz who've driven this through and their background in investment in tourism, entertainment, etc., that this marks a bit of a change in kind of high finance from the US into sports outside the US. He believes this is the first time we've seen that area of financing going into certainly endurance racing. He believes this level of motorsport at all. We have seen numbers of investors in other major sports across Europe and beyond from the US and it's David's view, and I don't tend to disagree with David on these things because he's a very smart guy, um, that he thinks that is a well that could very well be tapped by others moving forward if sports car racing moves forward in the way that we hope and expect that it does, that um, the potential for activation here is very high. And he made it very clear, by the way, we're going to see a major presence from Hertz in these race meetings. Interesting. I'm, Isn't it? Yeah, and I'm also trying to remember the exact year. Um, I'm currently searching through my photographs to see if uh, uh, I got anything on there. But there was, was it 2015 maybe? Hertz branding on the Porsche factory cars? Yes, at Sebring. I remember there yeah. being an unveil. Oh, we had them in... WC, WC, yeah. we had them for a year or so. Um, so they're an associate sponsor at that stage. What I can't remember, uh, I think that came before, um, it definitely came before Hertz were one of the major corporates that had to seek protection from bankruptcy as a result of the impact of their business from COVID. That's frankly not unusual um, uh, in those days. But they're now a business that's bounced back from that and bounced back very considerably as the world opens up again. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. They were indeed a associate sponsor on Porsche factory cars. There is no indication, by the way, that that is the source for this deal to have come forward that's at all. Fair point. was just trying to, um, to raise the notion that the idea of there being at least familiarity uh, yes. between oh, indeed, Porsche, indeed. Hertz, and whatnot well, uh, it, it's it certainly wouldn't have hurt um, when sitting down with those guys and talking about the brand you're talking about, would it? They would have had the opportunity to see some alignments and see what the, the potential benefits were from being involved with a program of that kind of quality. And that clearly has opened some doors. But for me, absolutely brilliant result for, for Jota, um, no doubt whatsoever. Uh, that is a head-turning change. Um, not entirely unexpected that they were in that marketplace, 
Um, but for me, the most impressive thing about this is it's a three-year program. That's, that is a game-changer for a major privateer team to come in with the second announcement, the first for the WEC, um, of a customer LMDH car in world competition. And here, by the way, another kind of quite odd little bit of synergy here, which is this will be, plus the sister car that we're expecting to hear about from perhaps another team soon, the first customer hybrid car, um, proper customer hybrid, hybrid car in the WEC ever. Um, the last LMP1 car that Jota had a hand in running was the Corsa Motorsport car, the only customer hybrid car ever to run the the, uh, the American Le Mans series. So they've even had prior hybrid experience. believe we also had the Dyson... Uh, Dyson oh, they effort. did! I don't remember. They was did, did they? Track? Um, you, you know what? You're absolutely right. I know. They did. I remember. My brain worked this time. I'm so happy. Um, yeah, and it didn't last super long, but, uh, or, you know, the uh, length of that hybridization wasn't super long, but, um, yeah, he's... Uh, no. Uh, that, By that, the way. That didn't last too long, but there you go. Um, so that's that. I mean, that's that's double good news. Great news for IMSA with JDC Miller, and that secures that team's known future moving forward, which is good news indeed. And great news, too, that we've got a team stepping up from LMP2 to the hypercar class in the FI World Endurance Championship as well. And there will be more to come. And the other thing I'd say, MP, is as we move forward, in terms of the stuff that you and I are talking about in the background to people at the moment, we're focused very much on 2023. And 2023 increasingly is becoming a known quantity for the top class at or around double figures uh, for the top class in both the major championships and with the potential for some crossover at Le Mans, certainly in 2023 and potentially beyond that when we get into 2024. The bit that I'm finding even more exciting is significant growth coming the following year with two more brands we now know uh, stepping forward um, and stepping up with uh, in at least in Europe Alpine and there's the Stories still doing the rounds about uh, Alpine and whatever arrangement they might have with Andretti, either under the Alpine brand or probably more likely under an alternative brand. And then we've got Lamborghini as well with a program that you know remains to be revealed in terms of its scope and its scale. And then you've got the potential for customer cars for those brands and others as well. And then we start rolling into a second year of what at the moment is a five-year rule cycle. I think it's phenomenally exciting. Um, and I think as we get into more depth with this, people's antagonism towards the spec nature of some of this is beginning to be bulldozed away by the sheer positivity of what's coming in terms of the depth of competition. And I'll say it again, um, certainly in terms of LMDH, if you like GT3 racing, I sort of don't see a problem with um, with LMDH. BOP, it's a necessary evil, if you like, if that's the spin you want to put on it. 
that I think we start to talk about whether or not this is a success or a failure once we've seen these cars actually out there and racing. And I'm genuinely excited about it. Amen. Let me look through. Do we have anything else here? You know what? I think it's time to mm-hmm. turn to one of our last two main conversation topics. Okay. That being L-O-L-A, La-O-L-A. That's right. Uh, Lola's returned. The subject yes. of songs, the subject of T-shirts and, and, and reverie and spraying of champagne. Hey, it's back. Granted, we've known it's coming back for a while now, but at least publicly... Everybody knows that our man uh, L-O-L-A has been bought by T-I-L-L. And yep. what, what, what should we kick off here on this subject? I think the first thing to say is congratulations to Till Bechtelsheimer, um, the third B to own the company, after obviously Eric Broadley and then Martin Brain. But, um, and congratulations, too, for having so many important background conversations which is included with you and it's been included with me over many many months and yet nobody has blown the cover for this before they decided to make this announcement um at Watkins Glen and for that I congratulate them that's no small feat and it just goes to show before we move on to the other more important parts of this the quality of those conversations and the trust that those relationships imbued, which is important when you're talking about bringing in new sources of finance and investment into any kind of business, and in particular into motorsport. So first things first, what do we know? Lola Cars has been bought back um, and is now back into operation by Till. And if that's a name that you think you might recognize it's because till is one of the drivers for the gradient racing Acura nsx in uh, imsa competition uh, but also as with very many gentleman drivers has a life beyond that and his life is in investment um and in particular in investment with renewables renewable technology and that i think is at the core of what could be interesting moving forward what don't we know or what don't we know publicly yet is what we're going to see rolling out of lola which will remain a uk-based company will remain in its traditional home at huntingdon um, with the technical center that is now back in use Um, we we are aware that a variety of programs are being discussed uh, and that they cover a whole range of motorsports, sports car racing, single-seater racing, potentially something in the kind of touring car vein, electrified motorsport, non-electrified motorsport. All sorts of things are possible. For me, though, MP, the most impressive thing about this is that it's not a guy who has reversed a truck up to the front door opened the rear of the truck and shoveled his or someone else's money in through the front door of Lola and is effectively putting it all on red and hoping his number comes up with one vanity project. It's the absolute opposite of that. This is a softly, softly catchy monkey approach with a good hard look being taken at the opportunities that are around 
now and into the near future in motorsports, not just with traditional funding sources, um, but for me, the most impressive tapping into here is one of the areas we can be guaranteed is going to be a growth area in industry is about renewable and energy efficient technology. That's where Till Bechtel Sharma and his small team are going to be looking for to, to effectively give those technologies and those companies an opportunity for a test bed, a, a rolling laboratory for the technologies that we're going to need to carry this planet forward. And, you know, you, you mentioned a, a great takeaway here. And it's not as if Eric Broadley 50 plus years ago said, ah, I'm going to become a trillionaire by starting a highly specialized uh, motor racing uh, vehicle design and construction business. I think Martin Brain obviously hoped that uh, big profits were going to be a thing. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. hopes that their business yeah, does yeah. well. But uh, in the spirit of broadly, I look at Bechtelsheimer and say, if he retired tomorrow, he'd be set for life. He could not yeah. spend all the, the money he's earned yeah. Uh, from all the success that he's had as a business person. So buying Lola, hoping to get manufacturers signed up, uh, to get major teams signed up. I, I won't mention who, but I did learn that uh, one one of the world's most successful racing teams reached out uh, and wants to meet and speak with Till slash Lola here. By um, course. ASAP. Yes, the, uh, the racing dentist himself. Um this is something where if we're talking motivations, this is not a dollars uh, or pounds kind of thing when it comes to till it's a, it needs to be financially viable of course, but this is very much a passion project rooted in common sense. So he could have, if he wanted to have bought Lola and commissioned his own company to make whatever he wanted. We're going to Lamont. We're going to wherever, uh, we're going to b- build it, and this is all for me, me, me. This is instead someone who's decided that great opportunity here, tons of love for the, the rich, rich mark, um, and to try and make it back into a, a proper, running, viable, and successful business that can stand on its own. I just love that approach, and I also love even more, Graham, that coming back to Till's success in business, this is something where I don't want to say he has no worries. That would not be accurate. But this is something where he doesn't have to worry about turning a profit within 36 months. Uh, This is something where if it is a slow burn and it takes longer than most others would want for it to get back up to speed and, and get rolling again, these are things that I don't believe are going to be the least bit of a concern for Till because he's focused on trying to not only get the mark back and up in functioning properly, but he's willing to spend the time and the money to get to that uh, yeah. without any hard you know, calendar date being circled saying must happen here. It's those kinds of things that gives me so much optimism. Also, last little thing here to close uh, on this, at least from my end, it's where might Lola fit in mm-hmm. uh, in one of the stories that I wrote about this, just talking open wheel, 
yep. constructors. There are three, just three left that truly dominate the marketplace. I'm not saying there are only three open wheel car constructors left in the world. Just saying that really it's Delara, which seemingly owns the vast majority of the marketplace. Uh, it's Tatus. So we have two Italian um, constructors and then Liget in France. So those three receive the majority of the contracts to build spec cars, whether it's Delara as high as IndyCar. They are also heavily involved in F1 through Haas. Uh, obviously, we know they're heavily involved in sports cars, LMDH slash GTP, yep. currently in DPI. They've been in sports cars for a long time. Uh, heavily involved in NASCAR, right, with the new next generation car. Uh, Indy Lights uh, here and there, like, they own a big slice of the market. Uh, but again, the open wheel world, curious, could there be an appetite? I don't think Delara is going anywhere, at least here in North America, Graham. I think IndyCar is, is thoroughly wedded to Delara. But some of those junior formulas, when it's time for the next chassis, uh, when whichever version of a Tatus is getting a little bit long in the tooth, it's not going to be next year, the year after necessarily, but... In a couple of years, could Lola become an option for folks to consider as a potential fourth major open wheel constructor? On the sports car side, I think that's where the most obvious place would be. Is there a, a window to become a fifth LMP2 constructor? Not that we know of. Um, where might they fit in? LMP3, again, I don't know how many doors are open there at the moment, but I would think between some junior open wheel formula and some prototype type opportunities, I think those, not, I don't know if we're talking LMDH slash GTP, but I think some of the kind of second tier, third tier levels, which is where, frankly, Lola built more of their cars than anything else they did over throughout their history think that's the the sweet spot till has recognized and could also be that sweet spot where doors do open up in a world of spec 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 yeah i i think you know what um i had a long chat with till on the day this was uh, announced if you want to kind of get a little bit of an insight into uh, his frame of mind with these things I, you know do take a look at the kind of q a we ran uh, over the weekend with him as for the sports car side of things I bow as always to your hugely greater knowledge on the on the um, the open wheel front MP. On the sports car front, there are doors that are either actually or potentially open. And again, I'm not going to share confidential conversations I've had with Till and with others on this very subject. But there are avenues that are available. Should Till and Lola, or for that matter, anybody else, feel the need to go down uh, the branding front. In other words, just simply getting the name out there. And that does, as you'll see Till recognizes in that interview, have some value, some value. But that's not it. This is about putting a stake in the ground and saying this is what the Lola brand means moving forward beyond that point. And that's where I think it gets very, very interesting indeed. I thought the, the other part of it, MP, that I was particularly 
impressed with with Tilk. And I did ask him the question, is it going to stay a UK company? Yes. What's the aspiration in terms of the size of the company? You made it very clear that the company the, in its current trajectory is not going to get back to the 200-plus employees that were there when Martin Brain was in charge. And that what he wanted was to effectively have the technical centre as a centre of excellence and design and development. But that here in the UK, we are incredibly lucky to have what's known as the motorsport triangle. So, you know, ill-defined and certainly not triangular area in the middle of this country where there is a massive amount of small and medium-sized industry, highly advanced technologies, um, as well as some of the more traditional industries uh, that are able to turn around prototypical small-run development projects incredibly quickly. And for me, the really good news is that what you've got now is a hub around which some of that supply chain can now see the potential for multiple future projects and programs to emerge from. So again, that's good news, not just for Lola and for the people in Huntingdon, but for a number of those companies that surround them geographically, that they might have a part to play in some new horizons for, you know, a, a, a make that I'm truly delighted is back. Truly delighted it's back and can't wait to see what's going to roll out of there first. Let's see what else should we cover that we haven't. Uh, um, Hrishi, before, by the uh, way, we should say uh, thanks to Hrishi. Uh, yeah. Despond sending in a, a more targeted question. I know we kind of wandered around this a little bit, but uh, knowing that P2 is locked into their four yep. homologated chassis. Yep. Any opportunities there you see for Lola if they yes. got back? Yes. Look at Alpine. Look at Aris. Why not? You know, yes, you can rebadge a P2 car. You know, it's a monetary thing. It's a branding thing, but you can rebadge a P2 car. if it, All it requires is the ACO to say yes. That's all it requires and a check. Okay. And for someone to see the value in competing. Yes. I mean, potentially, yes, you could. You could buy another project. You could buy, you could wander into any LMP3 manufacturer or any LMP2 manufacturer for that uh, uh, matter and say, can we badge your product? Either as a badging of a product that already exists under a different badge or indeed to say to one of those manufacturers, how about if your LMP2 product wasn't uh, wasn't badged as an X but was uh, badged as a Lola? Those things are potentially there to be negotiated and discussed and you know so the answer is it isn't quite as close to marketplace i think as people think on the hypercar an lmdh front as well by the way assume at the moment there are smart people capable of having civilized conversations where the options might be there's zero doubt and again it's it's mentioned with no real detail by till in that conversation on DSC, that uh, does he have, have aspirations there? Yes, he does. Is he in a tearing rush to be there in 2023? No, he isn't because he's a sensible person. Um, but you can make this assumption. That is part of the series of conversations that is either going to be had or has already been had 
and that he will be in possession of the facts as to what the options and opportunities currently are. Assume that and you won't be very far wrong. Indeed. All right. Why don't we close yes. on a little motor race we had last weekend in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, that mm. being Watkins Glen. Uh, Lance Snyder, our minister of mirth on the podcast, says LMP3 <laughs> driving has been atrocious uh, at the sale in six hours. At what point is IMSA going to tell these drivers to get themselves more experience in semi-pro or even club racing, especially with lots of serious cars coming next year? <sighs> I know you did your best to follow the six hours uh, amid yeah. having to ready yourself to uh, leave for Monza and whatnot. I think I caught all but about 45 minutes of the race. And okay. yeah, I mean, they're uh, Lars Kern uh, kind of peeled his uh p3 car uh like he was shucking corn um with a driving error in turn one that led to a big old curb blammo with uh, uh I mean, the barriers um but lars is a factory quality driver he is but that doesn't mean he's incapable of no indeed making mistakes uh trying to th i mean the uh, admittedly the the dumbest uh driving mistakes and or reduction of quality came on the part of two LMP2 drivers who decided mm -hmm. to play Talladega Knights um, knocking into each other back and forth. And I don't know if it's totaled, but it sure looked like they nearly totaled uh, the, the uh, Carbon Peregrine yep. uh, Lamborghini driven by my pal Jeff Westfall. Jeff Westfall. So Jeff okay. yeah, he was climbed out of the car, but you know, okay. it's one of those things where they went to open the door to help him get out and <laughs> he got out and the, uh, the, the safety worker who was there was left holding the door in his hand oh, because oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was kind of, I don't know, maybe one of the hinges left, but yeah, uh, not so much swinging it open, but he kind of yeah. had a really valuable souvenir. The thing was so just, you know, just so worn out, but yeah, I mean, what? We had uh, Dylan McAvern with the motor blow spectacularly uh, in his P2. Uh, we had, uh, what, another one of the Duke drivers of uh, one of the Duquesnes make some mistakes. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there weren't a number of dumb-ish driving things going on uh, in crashes or off-track excursions with an LMP3. Uh, no doubt the same time i think barring dpi graham i think i saw that in just about every class so yeah. but to lance's bigger question here which i'd love to throw your way graham Ooh. hey uh, they're not going to be faster than the dpis but we are going to have a lot well uh, a pretty serious increase in car count in the top prototype class next year and beyond just the numbers that we're going to have increase in GTP, we're going to have a serious uptick in factory efforts. So hardcore drivers, hardcore everything. I expect the competition to be ramped up to a thoroughly insane level, knowing that we're going to have Acura factory versus BMW versus Cadillac versus Porsche. 
uh, a doubling in the amount of factories, and we know how nasty uh, they are when it comes to competing for wins. That's the thing I'm having to worry about or agree with Lance here of high. We still do have some, whether it's a pro in Kern or even some of the AMs and the various drivers who uh, found uh, found adversity or created their own adversity in P3. Any concerns on your end, Graham, knowing we're going to have even more monsters uh, at the majority of the tracks we go to in this big expanded uh, GTP class intermingling with uh, pro-amish prototype drivers? Uh, it, it is part of the sport is the is the answer. So there's there's two ends to, to to my response to this. One is here's the thing: you get into these cars with these entries and you can look down the entry before you arrive and you have to take into account as frankly you and i do on the road mp uh you have to take into account the relative skill levels of people out there you have to drive with your self-imposed level of risk adversity in mind don't you first things first second thing as far as extreme levels of driving standards are concerned there is a system in place. I'm not sure if you have an IMSA, but we certainly have it in FI racing of points on the license. Do you have that? I don't remember, but I don't, well, let me rephrase that. I don't want to say I don't remember. I just don't recall that being much of a thing here. Well, I think, uh, I think one mistake, no matter what the consequences is a mistake. Okay. If you've got a series of those mistakes that is causing contact and incident and accidents and damage and and risk, then that is something that absolutely should be and is within the gift of the uh, race director and the race stewards to act upon. Now, you know, if someone is going to point the finger at driver A, and say that there, there was an issue here at Mid Ohio, an issue at VIR, an issue here at Watkins Glen, where you weren't aware or you weren't, uh, you didn't respond quickly enough, or your level of aggression or whatever caused this incident. Then, of course, there should be something within the rule book that allows an action to be taken in those circumstances. But what I'm generally hearing here is. Um, and this is not, by the way, a, a slap down to anybody that's asking the question here because I've read it on social media. I've seen it discussed during the race coverage on across Twitter and across uh, the uh, the Discord servers that look after this kind of stuff as well. Is It's generally linked into, in this instance, LMP3 and sometimes LMP2. If you want to point it finger in the direction of individual driver behavior, then I think that's something rather different. And that's a cause I could get behind if there's a proven pattern of inability to to, to risk assess uh, an inability in terms of the driving skill to keep the car on the track and out of trouble. You know, too many ludicrous dives up the inside where there's patently not the, the room to do so. That's the kind of thing that if you're doing it once, we can all make a mistake. Do it two, three, four, five times. At some point, you'd expect that you're going to be required to go and see the headmaster. That, for me, I think is the answer here. Um, ultimately, 
the Innsworth Sports Car Championship has a decision to make as to whether or not they accept an entry or not. They've made that decision. They've made the decision that it will be those uh, that team with that car and one presumes with those drivers and that they will be deemed to be appropriate or otherwise for the skill levels on that track with those race cars. Um, there is responsibility here from the point of view of the drivers to be within a zone that they feel that they're uh, capable of withstanding, the teams that they're putting drivers into a situation which they believe they can cope with, uh, with the championship for accepting those entries in the first place, and then beyond that, with all those three things having been done, the race officials to determine whether the response to an individual incident or a series of incidents is appropriate, and if there's discipline to be inflicted, then that is done at an appropriate level, up to and including exclusion from that and future races. That's my view. Did I see much of that? As I say, I didn't see the entire race, but for much more apologies this weekend. Um, but I've seen plenty of races, and there have been a number of occasions where I have felt that the level of repeated behaviour that we've seen from some drivers should have seen those drivers probably initially quietly advised as to what their uh, chosen course of action should be before there's a public dressing down or exclusion. We have had them. They don't come often. I've not always agreed when it does happen, but it certainly should be something I think is more of a public discussion. Well, we're going to close the discussion with our pals, the Morell family, Jeremiah and Sarah. Um, asking about this uh, through DM over the weekend, and I was saddened to learn that this is the case. Uh, she says, my dad and my father-in-law and her husband, Jeremiah, uh, tried to go to Watkins Glen on Saturday, and apparently Saturday was the only day they were available to go. So they were in the area with their father-in-law wanting to immerse him in some IMSA and sports car type love. Uh, she says, but there was no Saturday ticket offered. Uh, so they ended up skipping it. She asks, how is IMSA going to grow its fan base without offering single day tickets for someone who has just one day to check out an event. So before responding to this directly, and mm. I ask because I'm truly ignorant does the WEC, ELMS, or otherwise, to your knowledge, Graham, at most or all of its events, offer single-day tickets, or is it uh, pay a large number uh, for all-inclusive, however many days the event is run? I'm pretty certain you can come any day you like. Um, I Okay, my coming from a position of absolutely zero knowledge. My favorite hashtag, uh, by the way. Absolutely. Uh, answer here is I cannot imagine a defense to a position that says, why are we making it more difficult to people to come to a motor race? So they engaged with a friend, good man who runs Watkins Glen, Michael Printup. Yeah. And Michael stating this very scenario. Hi, in the area, only got Saturday, would love to bring uh, dad, but uh, hey, do you have any options for that? And uh, Michael confirmed no. Uh, we do not, uh, I believe, I believe there was a Friday option, uh, which now that is common, uh, at most three day events where you can buy an individual ticket just for Saturday, uh, Friday, not uncommon though. 
uh, for the Saturday Sunday to be a bigger number, right? If you want to go either day yeah, or both, yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. there's one ticket yeah. to buy. You're not getting a specialized Saturday event uh, ticket. But uh, was told that no, basically, if you want to go, you got to pay the big number and basically waste money since you won't be coming back on Sunday. And not picking on Michael here, I can't speak to their finances and, and how they, you know, what they pay or uh, to host the series, or I can't speak to any of that. Can't tell you though, Graham. Um, watching both the Michelin Pilot Challenge race on Saturday and then the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship race on Sunday and looking at attendance, I, I can't tell you if it was up over previous years, non-COVID years, I should say, but it just looked light. Uh, grandstands, except for one-ish, maybe two, uh, were halfway populated. The vast majority of the rest were damn near empty. And you might say, well, then they all must, you know, must be a lot of folks lining the circuit or camping. <sighs> that was also pretty light too, brother. The, uh, the helicopter shots, man, I was looking and hoping to see things filled up and it just wasn't the case. So can't speak to the business sense of Watkins Glen. Cause I can, I just don't know. I don't know what they pay. I don't know what their break even number is. I don't know what their preferred model is, but I would at least say that based on the absence of a healthy crowd, maybe the idea of doing individual tickets, uh, instead of forcing folks to spend a big number, if they can only be there for one day, uh, I wonder we know, how's this? We know three people, Jeremiah mm-hmm. and Sarah Morell, uh, and, uh, her father-in-law certainly were, those are three people who weren't there strictly because of the economics involved and how they structured their it, ticket sales. It's money. You, it's money you could have had while you've been just talking about that. I have double checked because, um, I was sent an email with the ticketing details for Monza and you can indeed buy a ticket for either the Saturday or the Sunday or both. There's not a huge difference actually between the, the ticket cost for Saturday and Sunday, um, Saturday, by the look of things, for general admission is about 31 euros and Sunday is 41 euros. And the, the, the concession prices are identical for both days and the paddock access is identical for both days. So the answer is yes, you can. As far as European Le Mans series is concerned, I'll double check, but we came through a period where the general rule of thumb was it was free to enter for European Le Mans series, but you paid 10 euros to access the paddock, which is one of the world's biggest bargains, if you ask why, because it's a it's a great um, weekend's racing uh, for the European Le Mans series. I will have to check whether or not that's still the case rather than just announcing that it is. Uh, but yes, you can buy tickets for the other competitive days for the FI World Endurance Championship. I, I think that's a mistake, I'll be honest with you. Uh, as I say, if you've got people wanting to come, I think it's only common sense to find a way to say, yes, thank you, uh, hand over the money, without there being a penalty for days that they can't or don't want to come to. Um, that just doesn't seem like a sensible ticketing policy to me. But then again, I'm not the guy there with the box office takings. Yeah. So guess what we do now, Graham? Is this why I say? This is where you take us home.
I will indeed. Um, thanks so much again for engaging with us for another great series of questions. Thanks to Daniel Summers-Gill for putting those together in quick time for us. Um, it has been another exciting week and weekend in sports car racing. Much, much more to come with IMSA Racing again this weekend, European Le Mans Series and more, and WEC beyond that. For now, though, we are going to say thank you to Cooper Tyres. Thank you, of course, to the Justice Brothers and to TorontoMotorsports.com. Thank you, MP, for your time uh, again to get this Weekend Sportscast podcast together. I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Weekend Sportscast, part of the Marshall Pruitt podcast. And we will see you next week. Yeah, and I should also mention, I probably should have done this up front, Graham. Uh, we are leaving here in a day or two, and then we won't be back for more than a week. Uh, okay. My wife's birthday. We're going on a nice long vacation. So timing for next week, definitely a question mark. I know okay. we won't be back till mid to end of next week. So just uh, for our dear listeners, might uh, not hear this until the end of next week, or Graham uh, and I come up with a fun co-host. Uh, maybe y'all can put that together early in the week and I can post that very quickly while uh, on vacation. So anyway, we will uh, we will be back next week. Just a little bit of a question on timing. Thank you, brother. Good to do it. <laughs>